If you have a Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 4 today, actually walking through the book of Matthew in a little bit, uh, a couple of different places we'll be reading from. Uh, we'll close our time together in Isaiah 6, so if you want to put a bookmark there, you can do that. We'll be turning there uh, in a little while, but Matthew 4 is where we'll begin our time together in just a little bit. Uh, we'll be getting a brand new study, brand new series today called Ready, Set, Go. Uh, that'll make more sense at the end of the message and beginning next week as we get into uh, uh, the, the deeper parts of this study today is more of an introduction, which appropriately titled, uh, it's an invitation. Uh, not from me as much as it is, is from the Lord. But I want to ask you some questions first, and then we'll get into uh, our, our text today and, and our conversation today. Have you ever been in a situation or in a setting or a scenario where you felt like you just had to put forth your best, that, that you couldn't just kind of halfway do it, you couldn't just kind of, you know, fake it, you had to put the best that you had in you. Maybe you prepared for it, you worked hard for it, woke up early for it, uh, you, you did a little bit of preparation uh, late at night or early in the morning. Have you ever been in a scenario, situation where you just knew that there was something about the moment, whether someone told you or whether you just kind of knew it from within, you had to put forth your best. Again, it wasn't demanded. You just knew the moment deserved it. The situation deserved it. Maybe it was for someone that you had a lot of respect for. Maybe it was for someone that you loved more than you could put uh, into words. Uh, maybe it was a special occasion that, was, uh, that came up for them and, and you knew that you just had to give them or give it your best and show them the best that you could muster up. And, and maybe you, you've been in a situation before or a scenario or a setting where you just felt like you had to go that extra mile. That you, you could have just went the mile, but you had to go the extra. You had to do a little bit extra. You, you had to do more than was expected or was required of you. Maybe, you know, we, in a lot of situations, again, we were talking about school, school earlier, a lot of times we get into this minimal mode. Well, I'll just do the bare minimum, right? You go to the teacher and say, hey, what do I got to do to pass? That's really the only reason I'm here and the only, the only thing on my mind. Have you ever been in a situation where it wasn't about the minimum, but you wanted to maximize the opportunity because you just thought that something about that moment, something about that situation demanded it? Maybe it was for a wedding of a family or a friend close to you, or maybe it was someone that didn't ask you, but you just volunteered to pull out all the stops. And maybe it was somebody that you loved or somebody that you cared for. Uh, maybe uh, somebody uh, you know, was going through a trial or a crisis or some sort of situation that they, they needed someone to step up. And uh, before they ever asked you, you were there to go the extra mile, to do more, to give them your best. And sometimes there are places we are invited to, there are events that we attend, uh, whether they're a celebratory moment or maybe a, a, a more, uh, you know, a mournful moment, a time where somebody has lost a loved one and, and you just knew that you had to fill in that gap and you had to go and do more and, 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 and take, take, it, you know, take care of it and show them that you cared for them. Uh, there's all, all of us have certain things that we recognize that would, would draw out of us the best, the extra, the more. And all of us have stories where someone went the extra mile, someone did more, someone gave us their best. And hopefully we all have those same stories where we did that for someone else as well. Not because we want to say, hey, look at me, but because we knew that there was nothing less that we could do. And on a different note, there are situations and settings where sometimes we carry ourselves differently or in around, uh, not because we're compelled to, because we're scared not to. So on a different note, there's those that we feel like we just need to do the best, the extra, the more, because why wouldn't we or wouldn't anybody in my shoes? But maybe there are those situations that you can recall where um, you didn't want to do more, you didn't want to do your best, but you kind of felt like you were kind of backed in a corner. And if you didn't do the best you could or the most that you could, you were worried about getting in trouble or you were worried about the consequences. Uh, and, you know, usually there are places that we feel like we have something at risk, a, a setting where we really don't want to be there, but we kind of have to be there or unfortunately there. Uh, maybe we're, we're nervous, we're in, on edge. It's an environment where we're not comfortable. Uh, maybe it's a classroom. You remember being in school and there was those classrooms that you were just intimidated by. And looking back, it was just a math class. It was just a literature class. But when you were, you know, 12 or 15 or, or you know, trying to graduate, it was a, kind of an ominous thing for you because you just didn't feel comfortable there. And you didn't, the teacher didn't like you. The subject wasn't yours. And you just kind of felt like you had so much to lose. And maybe it was in college, there was a 
class you had to take, a crucible course that you had to get through. And maybe it was a real life situation where you just kind of thought, wow, I got to get through this. It could have been a, a courtroom you were sitting in, or it could have been a boardroom you were sitting in. It could have been across from your boss or across from somebody that, you know, you felt like they had your future in their hands and, and, and you didn't want to, and you didn't really wish, you wish you could be somewhere else. But in that moment, you just kind of had to, you know, grit your teeth and kind of work through it because you felt like something was on the line and you were a little bit worried about what would happen if you didn't do everything that you could. And usually there are those cases where we worry that if we don't say the right things or we don't do the right things, we might suffer some kind of negative implications uh, or negative consequences. And, 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 and for a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, this reflects their relationship with church or their relationship with God. And, and maybe that's your story, that even if you've come out of that, maybe there's part of you when you come in buildings like this or you sit in settings like this and you have the subject about God uh, in the Bible, maybe there's some discomfort in you because you grew up in an environment where you felt like it was always, you know, you were always teetering over the judgment, uh, you know, over the judgment or teetering over, you know, what might happen if you don't do exactly the right things. Uh, maybe church services for you growing up, you sat on the edge of the pew because you were worried, you know, hey, what, what am I going to be asked to do next? And what's God going to do to me if I don't? Uh, well, I hope that doesn't describe your relationship with God or your relationship with church. Uh, for a lot of people, that does. Fear, anxiety, discomfort, their emotions that go hand in hand with places like this, conversations like this. Uh, but I, I've got some good news for you, if you, if you don't already know, uh, that God would never want you to enter a place like this and hear him being talked about and, and talk about him with other people. God would never want you to be nervous or afraid that he is unapproachable or that somehow he hasn't invited you because that's the gospel that he has invited you. The gospel is because Jesus made it clear that it was, that, that God loves us, uh, that God is for us, right? That God is not just, you know, he's not just neutral about us. He's definitely not negative about us. He's for us, right? You'll never find someone who is more for you than God, your heavenly father. Your mama might love you. Your daddy might love you. Your wife or your husband or your kids might adore you, but nobody, and it might be hard for you to even imagine, especially if you grew up in a, in a negative environment or if you just are so in love with somebody that's sitting beside you, nobody will ever love you like God loves you that he adores you, he created you, and he, you, you are the apple in his eye. God loves you, he is for you. That means he is pro you. He wants the best for you and God welcomes you. You know, I grew up and for a long time, I thought, well, God might love me, but does he like me? You know what I mean? Right, you, know, you know, you love your family, but you don't like all your family, right? You know, let's be honest. You have, birth, you have those parties where you love, oh, yeah, I'm glad to see you here, uncle, aunt, you know, great, great, you know, extra cousin. I don't even know how I'm related to you. I'm not referring to any of my family here. I love all of y'all and I like all of y'all, right? But, you know, you have those family members that you just kind of have to see and you have to say, I love you because, you know, they're going to say it to you and they got you a gift and you'll never use it, but you had to take it, right? But you know, you, you love them, but do you like them? But thankfully, and Christians, you should love your family. You should like your family too. But you've got those people in your life that you kind of just tolerate. And I used to think, well, maybe God just kind of tolerates me. No, God does not just love you. He welcomes you. He likes you. He, you are his, right? He, he loves you sincerely and passionately. Jesus came to make that very clear. And one of his closest followers perhaps maybe his best friend, his best earthly friend, John. John introduced us to Jesus like this, and it's so amazing how he does. John says that the word, as in, if I was described to describe Jesus, I would call him God's word. If God has something to say, Jesus is what God has to say. He is God's word made flesh. So he's not just God's word written about in some book somewhere. He is God's word in motion. He is the, he's the motion picture that the book was written about, right? He's the adaptation of the, of the book. He is the living, real life version of what what we've heard about and what God has spoken about, Jesus is the word made flesh. And he dwelt among us as in he put on our skin and he walked in our shoes and he lived next to us. Now, John is one of the us's, right? This is not just me and you in some spiritual way. John was there when Jesus moved in into the area, into the neighborhood. John said he dwelt among us. He didn't just 
he didn't just tolerate us, right? He liked us. He wanted to spend time with us. And we have seen his glory. And John, 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 the glory of God, nobody can see God's glory. Remember Moses on the mountain? Nobody could see that Moses had to wear a veil. He was the only one. The priest had to wear a veil and go behind, the, you know, had to do all the different precautions. John says, I don't care what happened back then. I'll tell you what's happened right now. We have seen the glory of God. It's not tucked away on some mountain somewhere. It's not behind some veil in some special building. It was right in front of us. We saw him. We held, we, we, we held hands with him. We received from him. We have beheld the glory. John is using his words intentionally here. He's not just throwing words around. When he says glory, they thought, wow, that's a big word. The glory of God? John says, yeah, I've seen it. The glory as the son, as God sent his son, as if God had a son. That's what the, the, the word made flesh is like. God in person, God's own son, full of grace and truth. As in there's no other true version of God except for Jesus and we receive from him something more than we could ever imagine. He says, from his fullness, as in not Jesus isn't just part of God or just a glimpse of God. He's the full dose. He's the full picture. There's not a sequel on the way. There's not more to the story behind, you know, in, in, in some sort of secret book somewhere. He's the full version. Isn't that good? From his fullness, we have received what? Grace upon grace. So you want to know what God thinks about you, how God feels about you? He loves you. He is for you and he welcomes you because he's grace upon grace as revealed in Jesus. But, but John had more to say. John summarized a very important conversation that Jesus had like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Because if you love somebody, what do you do, stuff, do for them? You give them stuff, right? Not because you have to, because you want to, Right? Nobody was twisting God's arm. God so loved the world. Here's how he loved the world. He gave the world something. That whoever believes in him, trusts in him, should not perish or be lost or be forgotten, but have everlasting life. Eternal, full life. And John explains himself. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. Why would he send Jesus all that way to do that? He sent his son into the world so that the world through him might be saved. So how does God feel about you? What does God think about you? He loves you. He is for you. He welcomes you. So Jesus wanted us to know that God's presence or pursuing God, being in God's presence, pursuing God is not like a sterile classroom or a courtroom or a boardroom, but that any environment where the focus is approaching God and accessing God, the mood should not be fear or anxiety or grief or oh no, what's next? Because Jesus came to give us access to a God who loves us and welcomes us. But on that note, Jesus made it very clear how amazing, how outstanding, how incredible this new reality that was coming upon the world was. He spent most of his ministry trying to convince people that this opportunity in front of them was the most remarkable invitation they could ever receive. So when Jesus sold the world on this, he wasn't just saying, hey guys, I got some news to tell you. Would you listen to me? He was shouting at the crowds because it was a big deal. At least it was to him. So you could say that Jesus came to remove the negativity, the uneasiness associated with God. He wanted you to know that God was accessible, God was, could be approached, but he also came to invite us to know God, to have a relationship with God, to show us why this opportunity should excite us more than anything, that it should bring out the best, it should bring out the more. It should bring out the extra because something in us says this is too good to give anything less. There's just, there are certain settings and scenarios that draw out the best of us that cause us to put our best forth, to give a little bit more, to do a little extra. He, his desire is that we would have that same motivation in our devotion to God. Not because we have to, but because we have to. 
I know those words are the same. If you're listening to this, you know, hey, what is that? Not because I have to. You know the stuff that you have to do, right? You have to pay your bills or somebody will come knocking. You have to listen to your boss or you might lose your job. You have to appear in court when you're summoned because it might be even worse if you don't. You have to do that assignment. You have to clean this. You have to repair that. Oh, I can't do this unless I do that. You have to, right? And I know nobody likes the have to's, right? I gotta be there at 11. I gotta be there at six. I gotta be there at a certain time. But, but listen, there are people for whom you love, your children, your husband, your wife, that it's not about what you have to do. It's about what you have to do from deep down inside of you. There's something in you that says, I've got to do that for them. They don't stand over you and say you better or you must or you should, but something in you before you're even asked to do it, you rise up every day and you have to do it for them. You know what I'm talking about? Right? There's the have-tos that you don't really want to do, and there's the have-tos that you already did it yesterday, right? There's the have-tos that somebody's standing over you saying you better, or you've got this much time to do it, and there's the have-tos that something in you says, I've got to roll my sleeves up and give 110% because there is no other substitute for my best when it comes to them, when it comes to this. For that person that's celebrating a big day, that family this morning, the loss of someone special, you have to pour yourself out for them. Nobody told you you weren't obligated to. You could have easily picked the phone up and said, hey, I'm sorry, but I don't have, you know, don't expect to see me, right? You could have wrote them a card. You could have, you know, told them later when you saw them. But something deep down inside of you wanted to do more, right? And you know these relationships. You know what those have-tos are like. Nobody had to command you or coerce you to do anything, but something from within you compelled you. It might have been love, respect, appreciation. It might have been excitement, but something from deep down inside of you compelled you to put forth your best, to do more, to do extra, to be extra, and to go farther. This is the kind of relationship that Jesus desires that you have with God. This is why he came. He didn't come so you would know about God. He didn't come that you would feel guilty or obligated to serve him. And and, and listen, if God wanted to leverage fear or guilt, do you think he would have sent Jesus from heaven to earth, from glory to a gory cross to do so? Hello? I mean, if God wanted to scare us into submission, all it takes is a few lightning bolts, right? All it takes is a few earthquakes. All it takes is a few thou shalt do this or else. He didn't have to send Jesus all the way from heaven to earth to walk in our shoes, to die for us, to guilt us into serving him. He could have done that with the snap of his fingers. He wanted more from you. He wanted more for you. So as John puts it, he came and dwelt among us. He showed us a side of God that was unheard of. He poured out grace and kindness. But Jesus did not do this casually. He was on a mission. From the beginning of his public ministry, he asserted that his entrance into the world, that God's invitation through him to the world was changing in every definition of the word. He made it clear that no invitation was more urgent, no response was more critical, but he also made it clear that nothing would be more rewarding than following him and forging a relationship with God, exclusively found through him. So he wasn't casually knocking on doors saying, hey, can I sell you on something? He was on a mission field to reach you and me. One of the most underrated things about Jesus' ministry is that he was always emphasizing the high stakes, how if we didn't follow him, how there would be something eternally costly, but how following him would be the most rewarding decision you could ever make. One of his followers, other followers, we learned about John, Matthew, another devoted follower, Matthew writes to us or introduces us to Jesus 
in Matthew chapter 4, and, and, and he gives us basically the one-sentence sermon that Jesus would have preached. Now, there was more to this probably, but this is how Matthew condenses it all down. This is the campaign speech, if you will. And, you know, of course, he had more to say. Of course, he said a lot more. You can read all about it. But this is kind of the, the let's bottle it down into one, two, three, four, five, six, just seven or eight words. Let's bottle this down. And let's summarize this as succinctly as we can. This was Jesus' message as he began his ministry. Matthew 4, 17. Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he didn't give any more details there. Hey, what do you mean the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What does that mean? Who are you to, to, to be the one that ushers this in? His introductory message was, the first word of it was repent, which would have got their attention immediately. Repent is two Greek words stuck together. The word change and the word mind. So the message was, I need y'all to change your mind or change what's on your mind or change your channel, change what you are tuned into. Every one of us is tuned into something. Every one of you, every one of us has something on our minds. We're going through the motions. We're doing this. We're checking that box. We've got to be there. Got to do that. This is what I want to do. It's what I got to do. Jesus says, listen, y'all, I know, I know what you got to do. I know what your, your, your obligations are. I know the world's pulling you in all different directions. But my message to you, and, and this is kind of a big deal, is I want you to change what's at number one. And of course, that's going to change everything below it. But I want you to change your mind, change your motivations, your ambitions. And then down in verse 19, the second part of his invitation was this. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change the channel, change your mind. Well, Jesus, who are you to, 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 to be the usher, you know, bring in this kingdom? He says, hey, y'all, you want to get in the kingdom? You want to know what it's like to be in the kingdom of God? Follow, knowing God, follow me. I'm not giving you rules. I'm not giving you a, a set of commandments. I'm giving you me to follow. So basically, he says this. I want you to unfollow anything that might keep you, not just do, could, but might, not just does keep you, the things that we red flag, might. If anything is gonna get in between you and me, Jesus says, I need you to unfollow all that. I need you to unfollow, change your mind, change the channel, change your focus. I need you to empty yourself of anything, anything, anything that might keep you from following me. When we hear the word repent, we usually associate that with repent of sins. And it does, of course, include that. But this is not only referring to things that are morally wrong. It's anything that might keep us from putting total focus on Jesus. Whatever might be keeping you from following Jesus as close as possible. Because following means to follow, right? It means you're literally following someone. Anything that might keep you from following Jesus as close as possible needs to be repented of, as in identified and put on the shelf or put in the trash even. It could be an internal devotion. It could be something that you are devoted to. Nobody else knows about it. Something that you are focused on giving your life for, good, bad. It could be sinful. It could be just something that anybody would be devoted to if they had the opportunity to be. Is it something inside of you that's getting your attention more than you're giving? You need to repent of that. Is it an ex external distraction, good or bad, immoral, or it could be something positive? If it's in the way of you and Jesus, it needs to be identified and it needs to be put away. If it's taking energy away from your following Jesus, that means you're losing connection with him. You're losing pace with him. Now, why would Jesus issue this serious, specific invitation if it wasn't unto something that would actually be that kind of a big deal? Either he thought it was a big deal and it really wasn't. Now, have you been there before? This is me a lot of times where I think it's a big deal, but unfortunately I stand in front of people like y'all sometimes and I talk about it and I realize it's not a big deal to y'all. This isn't Bible stuff, this is me stuff, like nerd stuff, stuff that I like that nobody else likes. I'm disappointed, right? You share that post on Facebook, everybody's gonna like this and nobody even notices it, right? 
Big deal to you, right? You know, you love your pet, you love your, you know, even your kids, right? But then other people don't. And you're like, what's wrong with you, right? And I didn't say that, but you know, you think, wait, why, why isn't it a big deal to them? This isn't that kind of big deal. Either it is a big deal, Jesus was just delusional and he thought it was, or it actually is. And we haven't even addressed the announcement he makes in this invitation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near or has come. Here's what he's saying. Hey, repent, follow me. I'm taking you somewhere. I'm giving you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now we know that Jesus had literally come from earth, come to earth from heaven. He was declaring that if you follow him, if we follow him, we enter into a heaven on earth reality. Heaven on earth reality. A new life, a new way of life, a new quality of life, a new state of mind, being unrivaled by any sort of, any other kind of life where we're disconnected or separated from him. So he came to earth to reveal God's love and God's plan. He invites us to follow him and leave everything else behind and enter into a greater kingdom. Does that sound like a simple request to just pray a prayer and invite God into your heart and see you next Sunday? I mean, I'm serious. Does that sound like a little religion that you check the box every once in a while? Not hardly, right? Doesn't it sound like something pretty serious and extremely important if God became one of us to come and get our attention and announce to us that this is a new reality you're invited to live and be a part of? Follow Jesus exclusively to experience it. That's not repeat after me. That's not go through a little religion. That's not a little devotion a couple times a week. This is a lifestyle, right? So either Jesus is being hyperbolic and he's overselling the world on something that's basically just death insurance. And you've done that. You've been oversold on something before, haven't you? They tell you all your life is gonna change and you pay it and you subscribe to it every month and you forget you even have it, right? You pay your dues once a month, pay your dues once a year. You get the t-shirt in the mail. Look, what am I even doing this for? But you got the subscription, so that's gonna matter somehow, some way, right? Either he's being hyperbolic over what is really just insurance or, or he is sincerely and earnestly inviting us to take hold of life that's abundantly more than we have ever imagined or ever experienced otherwise. Which do you think he's offering us? What do you think caused him to come to earth, spend years of being rejected and ridiculed that ultimately led to his arrest and crucifixion? Do you think he showed up to sell us a certificate? He could have done that through mail order, right? Do you think he showed up just to get our name on a roll? Come on. Or did he show up for something much more? I might be on my own on this, but I imagine, I think he showed up for something more than what we often dismiss it to and, and reduce it to. If Jesus is the ultimate, long-awaited, exclusive way of salvation, shouldn't our lives be changed for the better by him? And I don't just mean, well, I quit saying that bad word or I started giving a little money. I mean, shouldn't your life be fundamentally different? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't a relationship with him compel us to be passionately and joyfully in pursuit of God's kingdom? Shouldn't we be following Jesus above all else, giving our best, reaching for more, going that extra mile? Shouldn't we want that? I mean, what does it look like for professing Christians to not be following him in the way that he clearly desires in the gospel? What do you think that looks like to the rest of the world? I mean, I don't care what people think about me, but maybe I should care what people think about me. What does it communicate to our world when we are not thrilled and excited about the one who did all this to get to know us? What does it say to those that we claim to be on mission to reach when we ourselves aren't seeking Jesus like we should? I tell you what, evangelism without, enthousi- without enthusiasm actually has the reverse effect. As in, it not only won't work, 
but it actually makes people turn their head and ask, do you even believe what you want me to believe? Do you even, do you, have you read the Bible? I mean, I read it, I don't want it, but do you really want it? Because I don't know. And yeah, they can't judge us, but come on. This is why Jesus did, this is why Jesus promoted a total, passionate, sold out model of discipleship. This is why he actually turned people away who were not all in. And you heard that right. Jesus never said, well, at least I got 20% of them, 20% of their heart. Maybe I'll get the rest of it someday. He didn't do that. Now, this local church mentality right there, he didn't say, well, hey, I got a little bit of it. Maybe I'll get the rest. And that may sound extreme to you, but clearly Jesus believed that what he came to establish and put in motion was worth the best and the extra and the more. I want you to just hear this completely out of context example. Matthew 8, Matthew chapter 8, flip over there if you will. I want you just to hear it. And I think the best way to hear this is out of context because it just shows you that sometimes we think Jesus is just being completely off base or out of touch. But maybe he had some, maybe he knew more than, than we know and maybe he had a better strategy than we think we do. In Matthew 18, verse 18, it says that Jesus saw the great multitudes about him. He gave a commandment to depart to the other side and it was gonna be you know, complicated and it was gonna be costly and it was gonna be all this ordeal. And a certain scribe came and said, hey, Jesus, hey, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus knew that there was some stuff in this guy's heart that maybe didn't really mean that. And he says, hey, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So if you want to really follow me, I hope you like being homeless because I am homeless by the word, by the definition of the word. Think, well, Jesus would never take me to somewhere uncomfortable or he would never make my lifestyle. He says, hey, I want you to follow me. I believe if you follow me, life without a home will still be more fulfilled than whatever you've got without me. Do you hear that? I believe if you follow me and you leave it all behind, your life will still be better than it is right now without me. You gotta be really confident in what you're selling to say that, don't you? Right? I'm never going to sell you something and say, well, hey, you're going to lose all your money. You know, if, hey, I only got this much money. Well, give it all to me. Your life will be better with this thing I'm giving you, even though you'll be you know, broke. No, that would be crazy of me to say that. Because I don't think that what I would have to sell you is worth that much. But clearly Jesus knew, right? He goes on and he, said, he says in verse 21, another of his disciples said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. I mean, can you get any more, you know, excusable than that? And Jesus said, hey, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. He doesn't, now, it, come on. If, if you're a politician and you say something like that, you're gonna get smeared and people are gonna say all kinds of stuff about you. They're gonna do it anyway. But I mean, you better not, you know, people that are in positions of power in this world, you gotta be careful what you say. Even me in front of people, you know, in front of y'all, I gotta make sure that when I say something, I mean what I say because you might take it and get misunderstood, you know, take it and take it in the wrong direction. So Jesus said things and he meant what he said. Well, that's kind of mean, Jesus. Not if what you're inviting people to is really worth that much more. Let me tell you what I think is the best thing that's come out of the last 15 to 20 years of the so-called, of the so-called decline of the local church. Thank God... Cultural Christianity is almost gone. There's no faking it anymore. There's no Jesus is my co-pilot nonsense. There's hardly any, well, I'm not a church person, but I still love Jesus. There's hardly any of that anymore. That generation of pretending has thankfully almost come to an end. We've come out of the time period where people just check the box on the application that they're Christians when they're really not. Just because I live in the South and my grandma was doesn't mean I am. And I believe great was the celebration in heaven when that lukewarm deception began to end. 
Oh yeah, our churches are less full and oh yeah, people, there's less population claiming to be Christian. But I think God in heaven celebrated that kind of decline. I know this might be unpopular for me to say. Either we are following him sincerely and wholeheartedly or just be honest with yourself and admit I'm just not that interested. Now, there may be a some that still try to ride the fence and say as close as they can while they still, you know, do whatever they want to do. But I think the wheat and the chaff has been separated, and that is a good thing. Yeah, there's some still big movements that are more culture and club than they are Christian and church, but it's not hard to figure out the intentions there. But what, it, what, has, what has become clear, the Bible-believing... Bible, the Christ-exalting, Bible-believing, living sacrifice, one-anothering, we over me, thy over my, Christ-following people, they stand out now more than ever, and thank God they do. Thank God you do. There's no blending in. I mean, you either are exalting Jesus and you believe his word and you are a living sacrifice for his kingdom and you're putting others in front of yourselves and you're seeking his kingdom over your own. You're following Jesus or you are not following Jesus. There's no, well, yeah, I kind of am. And we should be thankful that this has become all the more black and white. There was a time in ancient Israel when devotion to Yahweh was a casual affair and you couldn't really tell the difference between Yahweh worship and Baal worship. Yahweh worship, of course, was a life of humility and purity and integrity and charity. Baal was really just a placeholder for self. It was a, a way of living for yourself and living carelessly. Yet somehow the two became conflated and God raised a prophet up to stir the nation in the right direction. And Elijah the prophet said this to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is Lord, follow him. But the people did not know how to answer that because their lives were so compromised. And Elijah said, hey, I, even I, I'm the only one left. There's a lot more of you than there are me. But that was worth it to him to make that extinction. So when Jesus has this tone that we might think is a little bit insensitive. His approach wasn't new, but it was all the more appropriate. Toward the end of his ministry, after several occasions where he would again put it clearly what it meant to follow him, he equated following him to taking up a cross, a Roman cross, denying yourself so that nothing might get in the way of what God has in store. There were times when his own disciples thought about leaving on the edge of their seats, just waiting to see who would go first and who would leave first. But when the rubber hit the road, Jesus on cross was looming. He knew that sincerity and truth was more important than ever. He would ask them difficult questions. Will you also go away? Who do you say that I am? Because he wanted their faith to be genuine and he wanted them to have a passion and a zeal for him. He began preparing his followers for the future. And he spoke in parables in the most part, which was his way of concealing his message from the outside world, but emphasizing it to those that were with him. Perhaps one of the most clarifying, definitely most convicting of them all is found in Matthew 22 that I want to close our time with today. If you'll turn over there with me. He told a parable about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And listen to how he introduces what the kingdom is like. He says, and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now in these days when the king had a, arranged a marriage for his son, that was a big deal because the coronation of a new king was about to happen. And naturally, everyone in the land would be invited. But in this parable, the bride is not identified. And when you think about a wedding, who is the most excited for the wedding? It's the bride, right? It's what they've waited for their entire lives. Now, in the Bible, we don't have to play spoiler free. The bride in the Bible, the, in the, the bride in the parable is the church, right? The Bible refers to the church as the bride of Christ. 
So the bride would have been expected to be devoted and excited and completely smitten by the son of the king, right? This is a parable about the father sending his son to get his bride. So naturally, the bride should be excited about the wedding. Revelation 19 says that let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. There is a preparation because the bride is excited for her wedding. The church is excited to be with Jesus. Which makes this all the more important about how the, how the individuals that are invited, how they respond is not just the response of guests at the wedding. It carries the response of the would-be members of the bride because the bride is the body, the body of Christ, the many members that make up the church. So when these people that are invited to this wedding, they represent not just the attendees, they represent the bride. So you would expect them to be excited, passionate. This is God's invitation to us today. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants because he's excited about it. Again, tell those who are invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and the fatted cattle are killed. All things, everything is ready. Come to the wedding. And more importantly, come to the wedding feast. He's excited about it. This is God's invitation to us. Repent, the kingdom is here. Follow Jesus, everything is ready. God has made the way. The calf has been slaughtered. The provision has been made. The only thing outstanding is our response. The ceremony isn't even mentioned. It's just the feast. Because that's what it really the example in the Bible of a relationship with God is often sitting down at the dinner table. Jesus invited the church at Laodicea. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her and eat with them. It's a, it's a fellowship around a table. Everything we could ever want and all that we will ever need is provided for us in Christ. From salvation to satisfaction, from forgiveness to fulfillment. Why else would Jesus say, Repent of everything in the way and follow me. Either he's insane and delusional and a narcissistic lunatic, or he's God in flesh, the savior of all humanity. He's one of the two. Either he thinks he's something and he's not, or he is God made flesh. He's inviting us to turn loose of the counterfeit and the artificial and take hold of true and abundant and eternal life. And he sees our stomachs full of, not satisfied and not full, yet we move on from this to that, hoping we'll find something that finishes or finally fulfills us and finally satisfies us. But no matter what, the, what stuff we obtain, what sights we see, what treasures we hoard, what trophies we win, what pictures we hang, no matter the goals we score, nothing, 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 and no one, no one will do for us what a relationship with Jesus can do and a life of service will do. Nothing compares. So when he says, everything is ready, what should we do? Verse five, but they made light of it and they went their ways, one to the farm, one to their business. They verbalized their excuses and they all sounded like good excuses. Maybe to miss an actual real world wedding, but they were pathetic excuses when you consider what Jesus was inviting them to. Oh, I can't consider what Jesus has for me today. You see, I've got this thing planned. I've got a me day planned. I'm too busy building my kingdom. Oh, let me first check my politics and let me first check my financial priorities. Let me make sure I actually like those people before I wrote myself into something with those people. All of these are lousy excuses when we consider what Jesus is offering to us. 
In any case, the king moves on to find guests who were more than willing to come, who were excited to be there, willing to do more and extra and bring their best. But down in verse 11, the parable tells us that someone made their way into the dining hall that seemed a little bit off. It says there was, the king came and found a man who did not have a wedding garment on. Now, this wedding garment is not the righteousness of Jesus. The invitation was the righteousness of God. Everyone was invited and welcomed on the basis that Jesus was inviting them and accepting them. No one earned their invite. Nobody ever earns their invite. You're invited because of what Jesus did for you. But in the, in the ancient world, what you wore to a wedding was a big deal. And if you didn't have the proper garments, the king would buy you the garment you needed. He would give you the garment. You didn't have to pay for it. If you wanted to go and you needed a garment, you could get one from him at the front door. So I think this speaks of the, the desire to be there and reflects the enthusiasm and the passion of the heart of the, NT or lack, of the attendee or lack thereof. The king didn't want someone there just because they had to be there. He wanted someone that was excited to be there. How could this not be the biggest event of the year? I mean, he killed the fatted calf. Everything was ready. And you're going to show up like we're serving third-rate reheated leftovers? Come on. Verse 12, he said, friend, how did you come here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, few are chosen. Now, I know you're expecting me to say, and he was thrown into hell. That's not what that refers to. In the ancient custom, the party would be inside the castle gates. But if you were outside the castle gates, it was all dead. It was all dull. It was no party. You could see what's going on inside the party. You knew you would be there. You could be there. But you're outside listening to all the noise without you. Everyone is invited. Many are called. Few are chosen. This word chosen is the word eclectos. Eclectos, the chosen. It's not refer to people who are chosen by God over others, but it refers to people that are recognized by God over others. Recognized as choosing something that was made available to them that maybe wasn't required of them, but they got it because they wanted it. Think about when Mary and Martha are with Jesus and Jesus says that Mary has chosen the good portion. In God's sovereignty, he's the one who chose us, but our response to him is what elevates us to this place. Every one of us are called by God, invited by God, summoned by God, yet we make excuses that prevent us from stepping into this place, this favored position where we realize what God has in store for us, truly. But it's so easy to make excuses, isn't it? What's eternal seems so distant. What's temporary seems so defining and so desirable. As we've seen today, Jesus invites us to something that cannot take second place, lest we ourselves suffer loss. So what will our response be? Listen, I can't convince you to seek Jesus with your whole heart, but I'm not the only one inviting you. I'm not the one inviting you. God is. The Holy Spirit is drawing you and he is what awakes you and gives you a glimpse of something glorious. As a preacher, I'm just delivering you what I feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to preach and stir up. I'm confident that he is doing that because I would not be here today. I wouldn't be following Jesus if he did not keep stirring and leading me. I'll say this though. If we begin to seek the Lord and respond to this notion of Jesus having more for us, if we open the Bible and begin searching and praying, we will not be disappointed. God will begin to change our heart. Our experience, we won't read it, but our experience might be like the one of Isaiah, who was discouraged by the world he was living in, discouraged and overwhelmed by all the things not going the way he thought they should go. But he prayed for a special revelation and God showed him heaven. He saw the angels, he saw the glory of God. He felt in the presence of God, his unworthiness and his response to God after he got a glimpse of all this. When God said, who will now go to the world and tell them there's something more glorious to pursue than whatever else you were distracted by. 
Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Everybody was called, but Isaiah chose for himself the good portion, the extra, the more, the best. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at different callings in the Bible where people decided to make a sacrifice that brought them to a life that they could never have imagined otherwise. But as for us today, what will our response be to what Jesus is inviting us to? He's called us. Will we choose the greater portion that we've often settled for less in response to? Everything is ready. Are you? Now, if you don't know Jesus personally, this has absolutely something very significant to do with the way you exit this world. That if you aren't are in a relationship with God through Christ, then not only do you waste this life, but your next life is on the line. That eternal judgment could be your next life. So absolutely it matters the way you die. It matters your relationship with God. And if you don't know Jesus in a personal way, if you haven't put your faith in him to save you from your sins, then by all means, don't let this day go past you without putting your faith in him and asking him to forgive you and save you. But if you are saved, if you are a Christian today, but you aren't excited and passionate about what God's invited you to, you're not living. You might be ready to die, but some might would say you're already dead. Jesus knocks and says, I want you to be alive today. Open up, I'm here to breathe on you the greatest life you could ever imagine. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we sang earlier that Jesus is Lord over everything, but the question right now is, is he Lord over me? Is he Lord over my life? Lord, you've got something for us. You're inviting us to be a part of something so much bigger than us. Lord, God forbid, as a preacher, I don't beckon your people to experience everything you've got in store for us. Lord, many are called. Everyone in here today, was paid, their sins were paid for. They were called to Jesus. They are called to Jesus. But Lord, would we be the people that choose the more and the extra and the best? Would we be the people that respond to the invitation with enthusiasm, with passion, pursuing everything you have for us? Lord, that pursuit begins by laying our lives down before you saying, I want more, I want to go the extra mile, I want the best you have for me. And I wanna give you the best I can because I don't want to waste this life on anything less. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.